Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, August the 27th, 2023, the last Sunday in August, another hot month. I hope it cools down in September. Um, I've always been a big fan, long-time viewers of the show. Now I'm a big fan of the Axios um, website. Actually, as it happens, uh, earlier this week, I had my old friend Scott Rosenberg on the show talking about the origins of blogging. He's their uh, technology editor. And we've got another uh, Axios journalist on the show today, uh, Bethany Allen. She's the China reporter at Axios. And she has a really interesting new book, a very important new book, I think, out called Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. The book just came out at the beginning of August, uh, and it's already been nominated uh, for the Financial Times uh, long list, best uh, business books of the year. Uh, And so a lot of people are finding it important. I'm particularly intrigued that Bethany is joining us um, from uh, uh, Tennessee, right, uh, Bethany? Yes. I'm, today I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville today, tomorrow Beijing. Uh, congratulations on the book. I, I'm curious, though, I can't help being intrigued by the subtitle, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. You're a very good journalist at a very good website. I'm curious as this word weaponize. I have to admit, it's not my favorite word. What, why did you include it in the subtitle? Well, I thought it was a, a, a pretty good brief way to describe the primary mechanisms that I outline in the book, which is to say how the Chinese government has come up with some pretty innovative new ways to use its economy to project power and specifically authoritarian, illiberal power beyond its borders to shape the behavior of companies, governments, and individuals to bring their behavior more in line with the Chinese Communist Party's core interests. And I I chose weaponize because we're not talking about neutral geopolitical power here. We're talking about a government that wants to erode human rights norms, that is currently perpetrating a genocide on its own territory, is using these kinds of economic mechanisms to get back more of the people uh, who are being who are being subject to genocide, to bring them back to China. And so I thought it was a very powerful and a short form word to describe this form of power. Bethany, uh, I I can't speak, of course, for Beijing. Who can? Maybe even Beijing can't speak for Beijing. But I wonder if we had someone perhaps sympathetic to the regime, they might argue, well, you guys in the West, you did that throughout the 18th and 19th century. All we're doing is pursuing our own interests, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, All states do that. Uh, Is there something about the way in which China is using your word, weaponizing its economy, uh, which is ahistorical, which distinguishes it from other great powers, rising great powers in history. Uh, you're, you're certainly right that every major power uses economic statecraft. And that's what we're talking about here is the use of economy to accomplish 
ge geopolitical purposes, and that's known as economic statecraft. And certainly the West, the United States in the 20th century, um, has become very skilled at using economic statecraft. And by, you know, by no means is this a, a new idea. However, there are some things that the Chinese government is doing that are, as I said, pretty innovative and that are distinct from the way that modern economic statecraft is deployed by the major by major western powers in the modern era and when we think of of tools of economic statecraft the most obvious one is sanctions and you know the us notorious for its uh, ever-growing sanctions regime. There are also multilateral sanctions through the United Nations and other mechanisms. Um, but what's important to understand about, the, about sanctions as a tool uh, is that they are almost always, including when the U.S. uses them, they are almost always deployed for, to achieve goals that are multilateral, that are agreed upon, as valuable goals that are better that make the world a better place. So almost all US sanctions are used to achieve the following goals: nuclear non-proliferation, protecting the integrity of the international financial system from uh, abuses such as money laundering, uh, fighting corruption, the use of the international financial system for corruption, punishing gross violators of human rights, and these kinds of issues. Um, now, there are exceptions. There are certainly exceptions. Um, and fighting uh, terrorist uh, financing. Now, there's exceptions to the way that the U.S. has used sanctions, but really the exceptions prove the rule. For example, during the Trump administration, uh, the, the, the Trump administration sanctioned two international criminal court investigators who were investigating potential U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan. The use of the sanction in that way was clearly an abuse of U.S. power and was an abuse of U.S. sanctions. Um, and it was, it was very stunning because it was so exceptional and so rare in that way. And when, the Biden, when Biden was elected, when the Biden administration came in, they lifted that sanction. Now, that's the U.S. side. Looking at the Chinese government, their use of their economic sanctions, as it were, um, are exclusively to promote Chinese Communist Party unilateral interests. Um, they're, they're only for that purpose. It never, never, and I do mean never, uses its economy to pursue multilateral goals. It uses it for things such as suppressing uh, criticism of China's human rights record, attempting to isolate Taiwan on the international stage. More recently during the COVID pandemic, uh, trying to suppress scientific inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus, uh, trying to prevent defense decisions in its neighborhood it does not like, such as South Korea's deployment of the U.S.-made defense missile defense system, THAAD, in 2017. So this is a, a key difference between, again, modern Western economic statecraft and what we're seeing from the Chinese government. And a second difference is somewhat institutional or technical, but it still matters. And that is that U.S. sanctions and Western sanctions are de jour, and they are transparent. So they are announced. You can go to the U.S. Treasury website and look at all the sanctions that exist. You can see the reason for them. 
Um, you can, you know, so there's, it's, it's de jour, it's by law, and it is uh, transparent. And that is very important for one of the, the key liberal norms of the U.S.-led liberal world order to the imperfect extent that it exists, which is rule of law, rule of law. And the Chinese government uh, is, is very, um, acts in a way that uh, is often opposed to that principle of rule of law. And Chinese um, government economic statecraft is, uh, is most frequently de facto and opaque. It's just something that starts happening. So for example, um, when uh, South Korea deployed that uh, US defense missile system, um, K-pop stars suddenly were no longer allowed into China to perform concerts. And Wati, a South Korean retail chain, faced massive barriers in its China operations. This was not announced by the Chinese foreign ministry. It just happened. And it was, in fact, very difficult to even talk about as a phenomenon because you couldn't quite be sure if it was... Yeah, it's, it's rather like dealing with someone with very thin skin. Uh, yes. Someone like Donald Trump. You never quite know whether you've insulted them. I, I'm not going to... Bethany, you've made some, I think, quite controversial statements about the West, and your book isn't about the West. I mean, one could argue about Western sanctions, certainly during the Cold War or maybe even towards Iraq, which are controversial. But anyway, let, let's move ahead. And I, I just I do raise those points in my book in which I have much more space to talk about than I do. OK, well, fair enough. And, and of yeah. course, everyone needs to read the book. Um, we've done a number of shows on China. It's a fascinating country with all, all sorts of um, all sorts of analysts of one kind or other. Many of your colleagues um, uh, Orville Schell, for example, uh, Thomas Orlick. And I wonder, in terms of your interpretation of China, what do you make of it? Where, where are these decisions coming from? Are they coming from Xi? Are they coming from, um, from business? Are you suggesting that this is a political regime or an economic regime? And, and what is its rationale for punishing uh, K-pop stars or or, or or other institutional interests that you talk about in your book? Uh, well, so this kind of um, what I in my book call authoritarian economic statecraft predates Xi Jinping. And the, the earliest example of it um, that I am aware of, uh, certainly the, the earliest and um, effective example, is something that we're all actually quite familiar with, which is the um, the basically enforced self-censorship of Hollywood. And, and that began in 1997, when there were two movies that came out of the U.S. that depicted the uh, Tibetans and the Tibetan plight in a very um, sympathetic manner and depicted the Chinese government as invaders and colonizers of Tibet. And one of those movies was uh, Seven Years in Tibet with Brad Pitt. The other one was made by Disney called, called Quinlun. Sorry, Quinlun. And when those movies came out, the Chinese government blocked uh, a, a current a different Chinese film, uh, sorry, um, Disney film, so Mulan, the original animated Mulan, from being shown in the Chinese box office. And it and the, the Chinese, Chinese regulators... Um, blocked the production company that had made Seven Years in Tibet, which was, I believe, Columbia TriStar, 
from showing any from any movies from that uh, studio from being shown in, in China for years and years later. And this was like a lightning bolt that struck the, the Hollywood movie industry. And since that time, since 1997, there have been zero, zero major Hollywood films that have depicted the Chinese government in a negative light that uh, in, in a significant way, or that have crossed any major Chinese Communist Party red lines. And this is really stunning, in fact, because in 1997, this was before China entered the WTO. It was before it had such massive economic power. I believe its GDP was approximately uh, a quarter the size of the U.S. And its box office size was negligible, um, just, just tiny, tiny. But even then, this, this very, very clear um, and powerful self-censorship that um, Hollywood Studios implemented afterwards was premised only on the promise of riches in the future, only on the promise of access to a future. Right. We, uh, we had, um, and I, I'm sure you're all too familiar with this book, Eric Schwartzel, yes. Wall Street Journal reporter on the show. His book, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy, focuses on that. I assume you're you, you pretty much follow Schwartz along. This. Absolutely. And, you know, his book is, a, is, a, is, a, is an excellent treatment of this. And so, you know, I, I, I raised this issue to say, to make an economic, an economic point, which is that now this, you know, I, I, I've spoken of Chinese style sanctions. And what I mean by that is the denial and access, d denial of or granting of access to China's economy, which is this was a very early example of that. Now it really can make or break fortunes and it does all the time. Back in 1997, it was it was just the promise. It was simply the, the future promise of a fortune. And that is how effective it was even back then, 15 years before Xi Jinping came to power. And we also saw examples of this in uh, 2011 with with Norway when uh, it wasn't even the Norwegian government it was the you know the Nobel Peace Prize awarded a, the, Nobel, the Nobel Peace Prize to uh, a, a Chinese lawyer um, Liu Xiaobo so this was before Xi Jinping so to your question of who is making these decisions it, it's clearly the leadership the long-standing leadership of the Chinese Communist Party that they have identified economic power as the primary form of China's comprehensive power at least for the first half of the 21st century, as China works on catching up in other realms of hard power, including diplomacy and military and cybersecurity. The, 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 the cultural conversation, to use a euphemism, obviously is quite sensitive. Uh, I, I wonder, uh, we had a young journalist, Isaac uh, Stonefish on the show, uh, suggesting he wrote a book last year suggesting that American elites who are somehow intoxic, uh, intoxicated in his language by Chinese propaganda or interests of culture are uh, avoiding this subject. Are you in this fish camp? Is there a cultural cold war going on, um, Bethany? And are you uh, suggesting that some liberal elites in America, for example, pro-Chinese elites, um, are misguided or perhaps even in the pay of, of Beijing? Well, I know Isaac well. He's a former colleague of mine at Foreign Policy Magazine, and uh, I respect him very much. And I read his book and I, I liked it and, and thought that he was definitely accurate in a lot of what he said. In my book, I frame it differently. You know, I, ha I make a strong economic argument um, in my book that doesn't relate, in fact, directly to the CCP. 
And that is that economic elites in our country, or if you want to put it, the economic framework and structure of the United States in particular, and probably the UK as well, and um, well, really much of the world, in the past 40 years have embraced uh, an economic framework that we call neoliberalism, which basically means a, a very lightly regulated capitalism based on the idea that capitalism, that free markets are inherently liberal and democratizing, that you cannot really separate democracy from the economic state of capitalism. And thus, there is no need to place democratic guardrails on economic behavior. And as a result, we lifted many of these democratic guardrails that used to exist on economic behavior with the rise of, you know, libertarian, the libertarian school of thought and uh, economists such as, uh, you know, Hayek, Milton Friedman, the idea that greed is good, that, uh, you know, the, the what companies need to do, their only job is to create profit for their shareholders. This is something that was orthodoxy in American business circles and clear, and to be clear, in American politics and culture and society for the past 40 years, and very few people have questioned that, that that economic structure was not created with a powerful authoritarian state sitting over the world's, one of the world's largest economies, in mind, this economic structure was created during the Cold War when the Soviet Union's economy was, was blocked off from that of the West. And there was no risk that a, uh, you know, a powerful, rich person in America, that their motive could be shaped by a very proactive authoritarian uh, government, foreign authoritarian government. So what we have here is business elites simply behaving the way that we have shaped them and taught them to behave for the past 40 years, which is to obey laws and to make money however they can. And up until recently, there have been very few laws restricting what types of behavior they can engage in as they are engaged in the Chinese market. And that is, I think, what has actually caused this problem. It is a lack of regulation on the side of the U.S. and Western countries, and more broadly, the uh, a total lack of the idea that without democratic guardrails on trade and economic behavior, there can be authoritarian guardrails on economic behavior. This is on us. This is what we need to change if we want to change the calculus of how business people and the wealthy act in our country. Really important and strong uh, opinions from Bethany Allen. She her new book, Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World, has been included in the FT long list, uh, business books of the year. We're going to take a short break now, Bethany. I uh, just want to uh, thank our sponsor, uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. They often have interesting stuff on China, actually. We're going to run a short ad for them. And then we'll be back. And I want to address specifically with Bethany what exactly we need to do in terms of confronting what she calls this uh, authoritarian liberalism coming out of uh, Beijing. So we'll be back in two seconds with Bethany Allen, the author of Beijing Rules. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. 
Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. We are back with Bethany uh, Allen, the author of Beijing Rules. Before the break, Bethany was telling us about the problems with what she believes is the authoritarian illiberalism coming out of Beijing. Um, As we speak, Bethany, uh, the American um, uh, Commerce Secretary, very smart woman, actually, she's been on the show. Uh, Gina Raimondo is in Beijing. Lots of controversy about Biden's policy. We've had Chris Miller on the show talking about chip warfare with China. What should and should what should and shouldn't America do in terms of confronting Beijing, in your opinion? Well, there's two, and in my book, I make two different types of recommendations. And the first relate to purely domestic economic restructuring in the United States. Now, U.S. politics are highly polarized. Um, you know, the, the, at this time, the chances of some of my recommendations becoming reality are very slim. However, I think it's important to still say them as goals. The second kind of recommendations I make are more easily achievable uh, because they are in the foreign policy realm. And indeed, we have seen the Trump administration and the Biden administration pursuing many of these goals. So domestically, and if you want, I make, I make 14 different recommendations for uh, U.S. economic domestic restructuring. But some of those include... Which are your favorite? Which are the most important, do you think? Um, I would say the, num- the number one most important one is campaign finance reform. So the way that the you know, U.S. Uh, campaign finance is currently, um, you know, th- the way that the law is curr- la- currently allowed is to give money uh, and corporate interests an enormous amount of political power in the U.S., and that shapes the illegal regime. It shapes the regulatory regime. It, it shapes um, the types of measures that we think are possible. And so as a kind of a prerequisite, if we want to implement, uh, you know, any kinds of uh, other kinds of laws, I think it has to start with getting money out of politics. Uh, and one of, and another sort of subset of that um, would be uh, having a public option for campaign financing, which the U.S. doesn't. There are a few small localities that do, but establishing either on the state or federal level um, p- public financing. Another very important one is... Oh, just, can I just jump in? I mean, are you saying that Beijing is funneling money to these no, candidates? Nope, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that our current system... Uh, privileges gives vastly disproportionate amounts of power to Americans with money. And in a situation in which many Americans with money get their money from access to the Chinese market, they will lose their money or lose some of their money if they don't have that access to the Chinese market, and in which their access to the Chinese market is being shaped by a very, in- by a very intentional policies of an authoritarian foreign government, they have very little incentive to actually in, uh, put into place or to uh, have their behavior be in line with liberal democratic human rights values. And that's why we see an epidemic of self-censorship from companies of all kinds, including hotel chains and retail stores and car makers. It's not entirely true. What about Google, for example, that's been quite active and and, and Apple, perhaps on the on the other hand, how's tech doing when it comes to Beijing? Very badly. Um, So Google, as you know, a few years ago, uh, had a secret project called Project Dragonfly to try to create a pre-censored search engine uh, to open up in China. Why did they do that? Dollar signs. Uh, And they, in fact, Google as a company 
um, circumvented its own internal oversight mechanisms to go around company values in order to create that. And the only reason that that uh, search engine was eventually scrapped was because of very brave individuals at Google who leaked it, uh, uh, Google employees who said they were going to stage a walkout, uh, and you know, which is a very brave thing to do in the U.S. tech industry, in which there are basically no labor unions or very few labor protections, uh, very few protections for whistleblowers. These are other recommendations I make in my book. So actually, Google has been very has been terrible about that. Um, other companies uh, only pulled out of China when they were more or less forced to, because Chinese laws became um, so clearly. Um, in tension with U.S. laws. And in fact, Zoom, uh, which I have written extensive investigations about, including in my book, there's a whole chapter about it. So Zoom was complicit uh, in various ways with the Chinese government as China's actually intelligence agencies sought to use Zoom as a platform to surveil and shut down Zoom meetings held in the U.S. by U.S. citizens on U.S. servers paid for with U.S. credit cards to U.S. company, right? And even after I revealed this in an, in an article that I published, and there were, you know, there was all kinds of words spoken. There were U.S. lawmakers who called for Zoom to be held accountable, whatever that means. Zoom only took action after the department, the U.S. Department of Justice launched um, a, an investigation into them and issued a groundbreaking indictment of uh, a U.S., a China-based employee of Zoom and, and later a follow-up indictment, which goes, which, you know, is exactly what I say in my book, that companies will not change their behavior and unless the U.S. government takes actions and has new policies in place to change their behavior. One of my strongest arguments is that it simply does not work to rely on naming and shaming when the, when the Chinese government sits over such a huge economy and when it has um, created an information and incentivization environment in which Chinese netizens are extremely active in uh, consumer boycotts uh, to support pro-CCP core interests. There are very few, there have in the past been very few mechanisms for U.S. companies, especially tech companies, to act in accordance with human rights norms and democratic norms. I, 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 I'm, still, I, I'm still not entirely sure of your argument when it comes to campaign finance reform. Everybody knows, and I think there's a degree of transparency, that these tech companies funnel huge amounts of money into uh, lobbying in Washington, D.C. Isn't the issue in terms of campaign fi financing changing the kinds of representatives in Washington, D.C., the kind of politics in America? How could um, uh, a disrupted politics in America uh, change American policy towards China. If, if, yeah, if so you have politicians who were elected yeah. uh, without money, shall we say? Right. So in the U.S., I would say what we currently have is a disrupted politics. And that's because of the uh, extreme dependence that every single lawmaker has on uh, on donations uh, and disproportionately from those who have money to give donations, which would be rich people. And now that we have the Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, we have super PACs, which can more easily funnel uh, the funds from large corporations and interest groups directly into campaign finance donations. So U.S. Uh, lawmakers spend an enormous amount of their time not listening to citizens, but listening to people with pocketbooks. 
And because of that, they are disproportionately likely to hear, be familiar with, and be incentivized to vote in accordance with people who have money. This is what I am talking about. It's interesting. One, an, another book that was uh, that is on the uh, FT long list is is one that wouldn't necessarily associate with you, but I think is quite connected. Uh, Siddharth Kara's uh, Cobalt Red. How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. I'm not sure if you've, you're familiar with the book, but he basically argues that in the Congo, Chinese mining companies have taken control of the Congolese economy and have created a, a slave-based system there. Um, I, I wonder how your book, Beijing Rules, um, plays out when it comes, not maybe to the United States, but to Africa and other developing parts of the world. China is investing huge amounts official of official and unofficial money um, in much of this world. And, and some people like, I think, Siddharth Kara would argue, um, is compounding profound inequality and injustice. Right. And so I have a I have a whole chapter in my book about China's relationship with Ethiopia. And uh, in fact, I just got back last month from a reporting trip to Tanzania, looking at a range of Chinese government and uh, um, Chinese government sponsored activities across the continent. And what we've seen from the from Beijing over the past 15 years across the African continent is a, a much more traditional form of economic statecraft, which is uh, offering assistance and loans uh, and you know various development projects in exchange for, among other things, access to minerals. And there are many uh, across Africa and, and analysts elsewhere who call this a form of neocolonialism uh, because it's it's basically an, a, just another way of taking resources um, and and not really helping the country develop. Uh, to, you know, develop the ability to develop those resources itself. Now, you can make arguments that the Chinese uh, approach in um, uh, the Congo, in um, Democratic Republic of Congo, or other mineral-rich countries is better because they do at least um, build bridges and they haven't, in, in fact, wrested directly sovereignty of the country. Uh, so it's not exactly the same as what we saw with 19th century 18th, 19th century, 20th century Western style colonialism in, in Africa. However, there's some really um, big concerns, again, from a human rights and democratic perspective, which is really what my book is all about. And that is that the, the Chinese government does not care about human rights or about uh, getting rid of corruption or about functional governance, or about civil rights or political rights in any of the countries in which it operates, including its own country. And as a result, the Chinese government works best with other authoritarian governments with whom it can make direct deals. And what it, you know, a very common thing it uses to smooth these deals so that it can, so the Chinese state owned enterprises, for example, can win out over companies from other countries is corruption. You know, we'll, we'll give you, you know, you give us this, uh, you know, tender for it to build this bridge or to operate this mine, and we'll build you a really fancy presidential palace. Uh, or we'll build you a really fancy stadium, um, you know, which is a, a kind of a vanity project. And in other ways, uh, empowering the autocratic rulers of these nations to strengthen their power. And what we've seen more recently, uh, in recent years, is that the Chinese government has become very proactive in essentially exporting its tools of surveillance and, mm. uh, and suppression of mass protests and suppression of information 
we see, you know, many, many different kinds of trainings. So bringing the Chinese government, bringing in journal, you know, budding journalists from across Africa to train them in the journalism methods in China. There is no free journalism in China, more or less. It's all censored. Um, the reporting project I did in Tanzania was about the Chinese Communist Party's uh, funding, uh, creation and funding of a party training school where the, the actual Chinese Communist Party itself people from the party come and train members of ruling parties in six different African nations on how to strengthen the one-party states in their countries. And we've also seen examples from Ethiopia where the Chinese government uses its growing diplomatic sway across Africa to get nations there to vote with them in the United Nations to block measures that would hold uh, you know, gross human rights violators to account or that would sanction some countries or um, you know they'll they'll get people to, to band together to vocally support their oppressive policies in Xinjiang or Hong Kong, and so the way that the Chinese government is using its geopolitical power uh, across uh, the African continent when it can is to erode human rights norms and to bolster its authoritarian power, to strengthen a growing authoritarian bloc, uh, and to even export its system, which is a, a fairly a newer kind of phenomenon. To be clear. The West has a horrible history, um, has a horrible history in uh, developing nations. Colonialism was horrendous. Western nations sometimes committed genocide. This is this is terrible. However, uh, in you know the recent in the past thirty years, the U.S. and European nations have at times worked to do better and have created a system in which there are human rights, there is an international criminal court, and though this system is imperfect, these are values that matter and that once eroded, it makes the world worse for everyone. And the Chinese government wants to, and already has to a great extent, eroded those human rights mechanisms around the world. Yeah, we've talked about this in some detail with a couple of other, I think, colleagues of yours, uh, Lisa Lin and uh, Chin of um, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they have a new book out, Surveillance State, uh, which they talk about the, the, the technological motors, if you like, for their exporting of surveillance uh, technology and politics. So finally, Bethany, um, I know you're talking to me from Nashville right now. Are you, are you based in Beijing? Where do you do your reporting? I'm currently based in Taiwan. I was um, essentially blacklisted from China in um, 2019, uh, presumably for investigative reporting that I had done over the past of the year, over the two years before that, um, uncovering China's covert political interference in the United States and its um, surveillance and suppression of ethnic. But how do you? Um, I mean, you're based in Taiwan, which of course is not close ally of, of China. How, how do you get your information about China? <laughs> through journalistic means. <laughs> I speak Chinese fluently. Uh, I'm, I can I read it. Uh, I can talk to people. You know, journalism, you know, to, to put it in kind of a, um, a little bit of a funny way is, is essentially gossiping with people you don't know and getting them to tell you things. Uh, and, you know, in, in our digital age, one can use many different ways to do that with people all over the world.